Aloha, and welcome to the Word of Hope with Ralph Moore, pastor of Hope Chapel Kaneohe. Hope Chapel exists to grow ordinary people into faithful, productive followers of Jesus Christ, equipping them through Bible teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Today, Pastor Ralph brings a new message entitled, Whose Clothes Fit You Best? Pastor Ralph will be in Ephesians chapter 4 today. And we're going to start with verse 17. And the, the message is titled, Whose Clothes Fit You? But on our way into the message, I, I want to do a little, kind of a little survey here. Uh, here. Here's the scenario. You have gone into business with another person. Now, if you're a man, it's a man. If you're a woman, it's a woman. We're making this up after all. So we can say whatever we want to. You've struggled. The, the first few months of any new business are a struggle. About a year and three or four months in, you started to, to be in the black. And now you're three, three and a half years into the project and, and you're, you're turning a good profit. Uh, you're able to relax a little bit. You're not putting so many hours in it. Things are better in your home life because the business is up and running and everything is satisfactory. And your partner comes in one day and says, I want out. I want you to buy me out. Now you're left having to do some creative financing. You're left having to run the business without a partner. There's a lot of adjustments that go on in your life. But you put the monies together. You buy your partner out. Your partner is off to California to start a new business. Uh, you're left here in Hawaii to run the old business. There's a lot of stress on your family again. Uh, there's financial stress on the business. Uh, there's, there's time of confusion among the employees. You work your way through that. About 17, 18 months have gone by, and, you're, and, and things are going pretty well for you, and your partner shows up. And the first thing that you notice is that this person looks like they've been sleeping in the clothes that they're wearing. They're rumpled. They've got that kind of soiled look about them. The person looks weary and drawn. And they pour out this story to you and they tell you that I went away to, to California to start the business. I instead ended up in, in Las Vegas, Nevada and I, I got caught in the gambling scene. And I, I wasted a lot of money. I, I, got, I got caught behind the bottle. Alcohol has been a part of my life. And I've lost everything. Would you take me back? Now here's the deal. I want you to turn to the person next to you and tell them what you would say to that person. Okay. Don't need to make a convention out of it. Keep it short here. How many of you would say the person next to me said something that could roughly be approximated, eat dirt? Okay, there's a few of you. All right, now we're going to do it again. Only this time we're going to change it just this little bit. The partner who left you is also your child. Now what would you say? Go ahead and tell them. <laughs> I heard someone say, which child? It makes a difference. You know, Jesus told a story that is similar to this in the Gospel of Luke. 
He tells the story of a, of a wealthy man who owns lands, who uh, owns flocks. This person is put in an odd spot. His son comes to him and says, Dad, I would like to have the financial equivalent of whatever I would inherit the day that you die. And I want to set out and make my mark in the world. And so the father goes, and, and if you stop and think about it, I mean, we just saw pictures of Afghanistan, and when you get away from the pictures of blown up buildings, and you start looking at mud-walled villages, you realize people have been living pretty much the same way in the Middle East for the last 2,500 years. And so here would be a man who's, he, he counts his wealth in goats or sheep, maybe cattle, land. And so to give, you can't just give your son a bunch of goats and sheep and some land and say move off to another country. You have to cash him in. So he really goes to the wall for his son and he gives him what would approximate his inheritance. And, and then the son uh, heads out on his own. And the, the story Jesus tells is he ends up in another country and, and pretty soon he's, he's, he's chasing the fast life. And, and he spends the money on women and on alcohol. And he ends up dead broke. And he becomes a swineherd. He becomes a person who takes care of pigs. And as Jesus is telling this story now, this is the, this is the Middle East. This is, this is Jewish people. And today it would be true of both Jews and, and of Islamic people in the Middle East. They don't touch pigs. They're considered unclean animals. They don't have anything to do with pigs. And so here's this boy and his job is to slop the hogs for somebody else. And, and, and he's in such poverty and such penury that he wakes up one day and he realizes the pigs are eating better than I am. He says that. He says, if I would go back and become a slave in my father's household, I would do better than I'm doing here in this job that I have. And so he goes back with every intention of becoming just that, a slave in his father's household. In those days, you could sell yourself into slavery. If you owed a great debt, you would sell the next seven years of your life to somebody and you'd become their slave for that period of time. And so he goes back to humble himself before his father, say, I'm broke, I've wasted everything that you gave me, I've broken the trust, and I w but I would like to come back, I'll come back as a slave. As he's approaching the place that the father lives, uh, one of the people, the workers in the field, spots him and runs to the father and says, your son has come back. The father runs out, embraces the boy, puts a ring upon his finger that's like a signet ring that represents the family and the family heritage, and then wraps him in a robe that could only be the father's robe. The clothing of the family. The, the renewed inheritance of the family. The renewed relationship of the family. Everything that could be good about a family is signified in this robe that's being wrapped around this person. He says, kill the fatted calf. You know, in those days, uh, they didn't have freezers. And so you kept one ready to go all the time in case somebody important came over. I've been in several third world countries and... You know, you go to Sri Lanka, they wouldn't touch a calf because they're sacred. You go to Mongolia, it's goats, man. Kill the fatted goat. And, 
And the first thing you do, I mean, the, the visiting preacher shows up. They want to go out and kill the goat. I shouldn't even tell this story, but I remember sitting there one night uh, in, in, this, in this, what you call a yurt. They call a gear, those little round tents. And it's a church that meets in one of those and moves with the grass. It's nomadic. And we're there. And all of a sudden I see these little kids running around chasing this goat. And uh, pretty soon they got him by the horns and they're dragging him and dragging him. And I'm getting this very sick feeling in my stomach. And I uh, had to watch the whole sacrifice going on right outside the tent door. And the goat squealing and hollered and everything. And, and then later on they cut it all up and they put it in one of those five-gallon milk jugs. You know those old stainless steel milk jugs? And put that in the fire. And uh, afterwards we had goat stew in my honor. <sighs> Not good. Anyway, that wasn't really part of the story. The next part, the Bible doesn't say. I want to be careful, I tell you. You've got to be careful of preachers who, who start putting things in the Bible that's not there. I want to at least tell you that I'm doing this. But I want you to think about this young man and his reaction. He could wear that coat and wear it well. In other words, he could relax into it. This is mine. This is me. This is who I am. I fit. Or he could be stiff and reserved about it. He could be stiff and reserved because there was some unfinished business rebellion. And I'm not sure how far I want to get into this relationship. I think some of us are like that with God. We, we set boundaries on how far we're going to go. And we sing all these surrender submission songs. But in reality, the brakes are on. Or there could be guilt. There could be uh, anxiety. There could be a sense that I can't really trust God because I'm so bad that he's not going to do well with me. And so I, I'm, I'm tense. I'm not willing to relax. I'm not willing to really wear this thing that God's trying to give to me. And I think that we're like that. That we have a past, we have a life, we have a history, and, and, it's, and it's not what it ought to be. And God has a better plan. And we come to the Lord, and, and, and He responds to us, and, and, and things happen. You know, the, the only reason that I am a Christian today is because I see people's lives being transformed as they yield to the love of God. I'm not a Christian just because I read it in the Bible. I'm a Christian because what I read in the Bible translates itself into real stuff in real people's life, experiential stuff. And so we experience God, we encounter God, and yet in many cases we're still wearing the old clothes. And the Lord's saying, I want you to take off the old clothes and I want to clothe you anew. I want to put something fresh on you. I, want, I have new garments for you to wear. So as we get into this, in chapter 4, verse 17, it talks about confusion. And he's basically saying, forsake confusion. He says, with the Lord's authority, let me say this, live no longer as the ungodly do. Now when he says the ungodly, it's not like ungodly people. He's just saying people who are without God. Don't live like people who are without God. He's not throwing rocks at anybody. 
He says, live no longer as the ungodly do, for they are hopelessly confused. And the word for confused there, in the original language, literally means transient. We think of confused people as people who are in a daze. What Paul is saying is more, they have no basis for making up their mind. They're transient. One day they think one thing, the next day they think another thing. You know, we live in a society where people love to go around and declare, uh, you know, they, they feel like intellectuals and philosophers and they like to declare there are, there are no moral absolutes. Well, I'm not really so sure that you could ever justify rape. So I'm not so sure if there's no moral absolutes. I'm not so sure that you could ever justify a man beating up his wife. Or you could ever respect a man who did so. I'm not sure that you could ever justify a woman beating up her husband, and we've had to deal with that. I'm not sure that you could, you could make pedophilia right. People doing perverted sexual things with, with children. But do you, you know that in Washington, D.C., there's a lobby, there's a national organization to lobby for the civil rights of pedophiles? And their whole deal is that if we have informed consent from a person under 14 years old, it's all right for us to have sex with them. And so we have a world that has no moral compass. We have a world that has no ability to say with any confidence. I mean, you really stop and think about this. It's scary. I mean, if I were a person that didn't believe in God, I'd be terrified of just living. If there is no moral arbiter... If there is no one that's the final judge that says this is correct, that's incorrect, then there really is no basis for making many of the decisions that we have to make every single day. And there's very little glue to hold our society together. We're living in a post-Christian society. We still have the Christian mores influencing government and law. But we're quickly pulling the ground out from under that. And as that goes away, chaos ensues. Does that make sense to you? And so Paul says, don't be like un ungodly people because they're hopelessly transient. They're caught without any, any, any point of judgment. They don't know how to say right is right and wrong is wrong. You know, I just love to harass people when they give me that argument about there's no moral absolutes. And I just like to just pull this little thing out right here and go, this is my moral absolutes indicator. And they look at me with confusion and I, I say, let's just go right over your car and I'll show you that you believe in moral absolutes. <sighs> now, I've never gotten that far. But if I walked up to your car and did that, you would scream that it was wrong. And I would smile and say, but it made me feel good. I mean, that's, that's the philosophic underpinning of most people's life. It makes you feel good. It must be right. Well, if pedophilia makes you feel good, you stay away from my granddaughter. 
this serious. And so he says that their closed minds, the confused, transient people, their closed minds are full of darkness. When it says full of darkness, the, the, the word in the New Testament Greek says they're full of dark imaginations. Now I think that that can take the, the form of a lot of us have a fantasy life that's pretty dark. It's pretty putrid. And we would immediately run to that. But many of us have dark imaginations about our own future. We only imagine that things are going to turn out terribly. You know, there, there are people that you talk to them, how's, how's everything? Everything is always down in the mouth for them. Because their anticipation of tomorrow is a dark imagination. And they're filled with anxiety and they're frustrated and, and, and just struggling to get through life. There are people who have dark imaginations of their past. They're always looking back to something that happened and they fill their minds and their thoughts with that. Terrible thing. Those terrible regrets. Those terrible what-ifs, I would have done something different. Dark imaginations. And, and, it, and it's describing a person who doesn't have the hope of God in their life. It says that they are far away from the life of God because they have shut their minds and hardened their hearts against Him. What does it mean to shut your mind and harden your heart against God? Well, I, I, I don't think it means to not believe He exists. You know, I grew up in the, in the, the 1950s and the, I went to a high school. It was all science and math and it was all male high school and and we, we did all kind of stuff. I mean, they, they would rebuild a crashed airplane every year in the aviation shop and get it certified, 15-year-old kids. I designed a house that got built when I was 16 years old. I took architecture. And so they were constantly trucking people in from NASA because they were, they were always telling us about how we were the, the hope of the world and we were going to make the world into a place where there was 100% literacy, where there was no poverty, where the average work, day was, work week was three days and everybody had four days a week of, of leisure time. We were going to bring peace in our time. And we were going to do all of this without God. Because what was being pressed on us was this extreme secularism that said there is no God. 1962, I was a junior in high school. Time magazine comes out. God is dead, front cover. But that's not the case today. People today, anyone that you meet, virtually anyone, believes in the existence of a supreme being, a God. Now, they may be a pantheist. They may be that we are all God together. Uh, they may be heavy into the New Age. They may be into whatever but, but we're a step closer to God because everybody believes in the reality of the spiritual universe and everybody has had some contact with it, good or bad. And so this business of hardening your heart against God is not the same as saying, I don't believe God exists. What it really comes down to is, I know that God exists, but I really don't care. He'll do his thing, I'll do my thing. The technical term for that is an agnostic. I acknowledge that he's there, but I want nothing to do with him. I'll do my thing. And 
It says that these are the people who've hardened their heart against God. The Bible puts it this way in Isaiah 53. It says, all of us are like sheep who wandered away from the shepherd. We each went off to do our own thing. And that's the description of sin. That's what Jesus died for on the cross. Not all the stupid things you've done. He'll forgive you that. What he died to cancel out is the attitude of hardness of heart toward God. That's the sin nature. And Jesus came to break that, to change that, to make you to come to a place where you're willing to say, Lord, I'll, I'll trust you. I'll obey you. I'll go where you're trying to take me. I got a plan, but I think you might have a better plan. You know, get this. Most of us have this view of life that I'm writing a story here. I'm the author. And now God comes along, and I want to bring him in as a character in my story, and it'll be a better story. And we've got it upside down. God is writing a story, and now we've come to the Lord, and he's brought us in, and we have a role to play in that story. But he's the author. Does that make sense? It, it turns everything right side up when you start to think that. I mean, if he's writing the story... And I want to hold out on him and I'm going to do my own thing. He's still the author, so how much good is it going to do? He's going to get his way in the long run. So I might as well enjoy myself and go along with the program. If I'm writing this story, everything that I have in my hands and my disposal is mine to do what I want with. If he's writing the story, it really all belongs to him and I need to figure out what's he want me to do along the way with it. Does that make sense to you? I was in a discussion yesterday. Someone was talking about some people that, that are just really frustrated and uptight about their money and their finance and very little trust in God. And, you know, and, and, and I tried tithing and it doesn't work and I can't get ahead. And, and, you know, I, and, and, and they're going, you know, the problems that these people are having is, is, is with making the payments on the two Lexus and, and, and the fancy house and, all that, you know, and you know, you start to, to, to realize that maybe God's plan for me is not to just accumulate as much as I can accumulate in my life. You know, my wife and I build into our budget not only our tithe to the church, but monies that we're going to invest. We make sure there's margin there so we have monies to give away to other people. Why is that? Because we recognize we're part of his story, he's not a part of our story. And it changes everything around. Makes pretty good sense, huh? Let's go a little further. He says that these people in verse 19 don't care anymore about right and wrong. They have given themselves over to immoral ways. Their lives are filled with all kinds of impurity, and it means sexual impurity and greed. Covetousness, i got to have more. I'm driven by the idolatry of, idolatry of things. And then he says to throw off these old clothes... In verse 20, he says, That isn't what you were taught when you learned about Christ. You were not taught transitory thinking. You were not taught to have a dark imagination as you learned about Christ. You were not taught about sexual impurity and greed as you learned Christ. A different standard was set in your life. This isn't what you were taught when you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about him and have learned the truth that is in Jesus, and what's implied in that verb, learned the truth, is this, 
you have experientially learned the truth that is in Jesus. You've had an encounter with God. You know, there's some of you this morning, you came to church fully expecting to just be bored, go home, have a good afternoon. You know, you came here because somebody invited you, you were polite enough to come, you didn't expect much anything to happen, and uh, you heard a nice entertaining story about Afghanistan, and then I get up here and you're going, uh, well, how long is it going to take? Only something has happened along the way. Already in just the, the 10 minutes that I've been talking, there's been two or three times that something has just gone off in your brain. And you're going, wow, that's right. That's not me. That's the Spirit of the Lord taking what little words I got and pinning them to the back wall of your mind. And you've experienced the person of Christ. Christ. 